Well, if you will remain standing as we read James chapter 4, verses 1 through to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You are an adulterous people. Do you not know that a friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. And please be seated. I would like to preface this message, if I can, uh, in uh, not a, an unusual way, but draw attention to perhaps something which you may not think about, but which I have not been able to stop thinking about since I knew that we were uh, fastly approaching uh, James 4. And that is, firstly, as we've gone through the service this morning, you'll notice that we have read scripture. We have used scripture to have calls and responses. And then we have sung scripture in the psalms that we sing. And so from the very beginning up to this point, we have been various, various, uh, very consciously aware that we have been surrounded by God's word. And now we come to the sermon. And the sermon is very much my handling of God's word. And therefore, it doesn't compare, even get close to what we've already received in the worship so far. If anything, I would extend what we have done so far by two or three times more because of the edification that you will receive from it. But nevertheless, we come to God's word and we receive it. But I want you to know that the worship that you have engaged in up to this point, in the psalms that you have sung, in the confessions that you have read and spoken, and of course the responses that you have made, is the very edifying work of God through his word, by his spirit in your life. 
And the reason I say that is because we're focusing on a passage that comes down to speaking and making judgments, or rather not making judgments. And so let me just give you a bit of my background. For the last 24 years prior to my position here, I have served in other churches, and I have helped out other churches that have gone through very difficult times where there have been splits. I have even moderated between um, churches that have had difficulty with staff members and, and what have you. And one of the things that I began to realize is that as I was going through my ministry training and everything that God was exposing me to, I began to realize that I was one that always seemed to be faced with problems upon problems upon problems. And I don't run away from a problem, but if I can not walk into a room full of, what, full of them, then I would like not to walk into a room full of them. And so ministers tend to fall into categories of like David and Solomon's. Some are used to fight and some are used to build. But I'd have to say here, I feel that I have moved from a David ministry where I spent the last 20 years fighting for the things of God into more of a Solomon ministry where there doesn't seem to be any fights or quarrels here. Are there? <laughs> yes, Pastor, there are no fights and quarrels. And therefore, I want you to hear this message this morning because I don't believe that this naturally sits well with us as a congregation. Now, unless I'm missing something, unless you are actually out in the car park after the service having fights and quarrels and then coming in here and pretending everything's okay, then I don't actually think we're this way. I can remember a very sinful moment in my life when um, we had two doors in our previous home. You had an inner door and then you had an outer door. And me and my wife had trouble in paradise, which is an argument within marriage, okay? You call it trouble in paradise because it is a place of paradise. But for some reason, we had an argument. And I slammed the inside door, but when I went out the front door, I made sure I closed it because I didn't want any of the neighbors to see. I'm being really honest with you there. The point is this, that we have a way of hiding our true feelings, but, and we need to deal with them honestly before God. But I want you to hear this message this morning, not because I think it applies to you, but I want you to hear it as a fence at the top of the cliff protecting you from the ambulance at the bottom. I want you to hear this message as the necessary warning of what a church can become if they do not love God and love their neighbor. Of how it is so easy for us to go from gentle and gracious speech with one another into fights and quarrels. Why does that happen? Well, we're about to find out. And I hope and pray it's not true of you. I certainly don't believe it's true of you. And I don't want to be strong at times when I don't need to be strong. I mean, if I do need to put my foot down and step on a few toes, hopefully it will be like a velvet hand, uh, sorry, a steel hand in a velvet glove. There will be strength and comfort. But I'm praying that I never have to do that. And I'm praying that we as a congregation will never have to get there. But how do we avoid that? Well, the way that we avoid it is by not jumping the fence that protects us from the fall and the potential fall to the bottom. Therefore, because we are not fighting and quarreling, I want you to hear this message as a necessary warning of what to avoid 
so that we never become a church that fights and quarrels. Make sense? Okay. Here in chapter four, it is very obvious that James is moving into a peacekeeping, a peacemaking role in a church where there is very little peace. Peace is clearly absent. In fact, what is present is nothing more than a church that is at war with each other, that is fighting and arguing and quarreling. And the cause of it, it is actually their frustrated desires, which is a reflection of their relationship with God. In fact, all frustrated desires comes down to how you are living your life before God. And so the point that James is making over and over again, and he will do, is that your relationship with God, with God will always be reflected in your relationship with one another. Not directly as if because you are arguing with God, you are therefore arguing with your neighbor, but rather more subtly, that when God does not give you what you desire, you are then able to fight and quarrel with your neighbor. Well, how does that movement happen amongst God's people? Secondly, it's really important to realize that God does not want to share you with anyone. He doesn't want to share you with the world. He has saved you out of the world. He saved you out of the dominion of darkness, of sin and death. And he doesn't want to share you with that world ever again. And so he yearns jealously over you. And so verse 5, I'm, for those of you who are expecting me to come up, where did James get that verse from? I have no idea where James got that verse from. Because when James says in verse 5, as the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, you won't actually find that anywhere. I think what James is doing is James is summarizing the very character and nature of God throughout Scripture and then speaking of Scripture in a collective term as this is what the message of Scripture actually says. The point is simple, though, that our relationship with God will always be reflected in our relationship with our neighbors. It doesn't matter who our neighbor is. It doesn't matter if they're a good neighbor or a bad neighbor. It doesn't matter if they're in our family or outside of our family. Our relationship with God will always be reflected in a relationship with our neighbor. And the joining link is how we manage our desires before God. What do we do when God does not give you what you want? What do you feel like when God does not satisfy the desires that you have? Well, here's the summary of James 4. James begins with two questions, but the second question is really an answer to the first. Here we have a church where there are fighting and quarreling, and the reason is because people are driven by their passions which, is, which are at war within them. To put this another way, they have frustrated desires. They have a desire for something, but because it is not materializing, they are then frustrated. That's the passions at war within them. And showing us, therefore, that the church begins to quarrel and begins to fight because of these frustrated desires. But who is the one who is able to fulfill the desires of man? It is God. 
And therefore, their relationship with God in not giving them what they want is now spilling over in their relationship with each other. In verse 2, James shows us what uncontrolled desires will lead to. You do not have, you do not have, you have not received what you desired, and so you murder. It's hard to believe that James is talking to a church here. It's hard to believe that James is talking to Christians, thus showing us the connection then not only between us and God, but between the law and, of course, our passions. He goes on to say, you covet, and so you do not get, and so you fight and quarrel. Then James moves on to say, this is why your prayers have become ineffectual. You ask, but you do not receive, and when you do ask, you ask wrongly, and you don't receive again either, because all that you are trying to do, all that you are trying to get, is the fulfillment of your own desires. And it's very hard to live with a desire that is never materialized because the frustration can lead to a very sinful motivation of trying to seek it from the world if you cannot get it from God. In other words, if God won't give it to me, why don't I go somewhere else to get it? And this same motivation is seen in the breakdown of marriages. If my husband won't give to me what I think I deserve, then I will what? I will go somewhere else to get it. Likewise, if my wife won't give to me what I think I deserve or desire, then I will go somewhere else to get it. And so the, 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 the motivation's identical. When I don't get what I desire, I am frustrated, and then I turn to the world to get what I cannot get from the person I think I should have it from. Well, this is exactly how they are treating their relationship with God. And this is why James calls them an adulterous people, because they are in relationship with God, but they are seeking something and therefore enter into relationship with the world to get what they want. It's the very definition of adultery. Leaving the one who loves you for someone else so that you can get what you want. And so the, the relationship breaks down. It's very easy to see. And so such desires as envy and jealousy spring up and then cause fights and quarrels. And of course, we become at that point an enemy of God, verse 4. And then we learn, verse 5, that God is jealous over us. Now, children, when you read that God is jealous, I want you to understand that his jealousy is not like your jealousy. That when you are jealous, adults as well, you are often jealous for what somebody else has. But when God is jealous, he is jealous for that which already belongs to him. So these people, these Christians, have gone out into the world. They're flirting with the world. And God jealously chases after them. He jealously learn, yearns over them because of his great love for them. But they're adulterous. They're, they are sort of rejecting the very love of God that saved them. And now they are committing this adulterous act because they're seeking to fulfill their own passions. And so when God is jealous, he is jealous over those things which are his. But we, when we are jealous, we are often jealous of those things which belong to other people. Hence why our jealousy is sinful 
and God's is not. Now, there is a way of escape, and the way of escape is to draw near to God <clears throat> so that your passions are no longer at war within you. Or to simply put, remember verse 6, that God opposes the proud, but verse 7, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, verse 8, draw near. Submit, resist, and draw near to God. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. In other words, these are very actionable things that you as a Christian ought to be doing. Firstly, understand that as long as you remain in a proud position before God, God will oppose you in everything you do going forward. Rather, submit yourself to God, who not only controls um, all of life all the time, but that you are to understand that as you submit to him, it is the very loving thing to do. It is to respond to the love that he has shown to you. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. And then, of course, draw near to God. I wonder if that is a problem for us. I mean, how many of us actually pray? And then how many of us actually spend time drawing near to God? I guess if I can put it a slightly different way, how many of us believe that the moment we pray, God is just there ready to listen to us? As though we're just going around to our next door neighbor and knocking on their door and they answer it. I mean, do we approach God in the same way we approach our next door neighbor? Do we pray like we text? Do we pray like we're sending an email? Or do we actually draw near? In other words, how much time do you spend drawing near compared to actually praying? And what is the actual difference? Well, the difference is, is recognizing who God is. And that then basically shapes your whole way of approaching him. I can remember being dressed up by my mum. So why do I have to wear these clothes? Because we're going to see such and such a person. And then I got married and my, my wife says, get dressed. Why? Because you're going to see such and such a person. And then you come to church and you're getting dressed. Why? Because it matters who we are coming before. In other words, when we understand who God is, it shapes the very next thing that we do. We don't approach God in the same way we approach a friend over texts. We don't approach God in the same way we approach our next door neighbor. We don't pray like we're texting or emailing. Rather, we draw near and we wait and we wait and we wait. And then the next thing that happens is God draws near to us. In other words, you are to understand that the way a close and clean relationship works with God is first by drawing yourself near to him. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, for a double-mindedness and loving God in this world is difficult. But loving God in this world is the very thing that you have been called to do. You're not to love the world. You're not to be double-minded but you are to love God first. 
Instead, what you should do over the world, verse 9, is weep and mourn. Understand that without God, there's nothing good that comes from your life. There's nothing good that you can produce that somehow brings glory to God. Humble yourself, or to put it a slightly different way, humble yourself in the day of grace before God humbles you in the day of judgment. Do it now when you can rather than later when you're made to. Humble yourselves before God. And I want to say at this point, James, I want you just to lay off a little bit. I don't know if I can take any more exhortations. I'm feeling quite beaten down by your exhortations over me. And then he continues. Do not speak evil against one another, verse 11. Do not think that you're above the law. Do not think that you're a lawgiver. Do not think that you're a judge. For God alone is judge, and so do not judge your neighbor. In other words, James chapter 4, verses 1 through to 12, does not make for easy listening. And so James is kind of returning to a theme that he has brought about before, and I'll use this as the title. So this is the sort of first major point that James is making. And that is this, that whatever controls your heart controls you. It controls your thoughts, it controls your tongue, it controls your behavior, it controls you. So whatever occupies your heart the most is that which will exercise the most influence over what you think, say, and do. Before God, before others, and in the world. This is just simple truth. Whatever controls the heart wags the tongue. Whatever controls the heart feeds the imagination. Whatever controls the heart shapes your actions in the world in which you live. And so if these people are fighting and quarreling, their heart is filled with what? Well, passions that are at war within them. And so these people are living a life of constant frustration because they have no, they cannot live with being content with what God has given them. And so they covet what their neighbor has, and this leads to them not receiving. I mean, do you ever get moody when you don't receive what you want? Does it ever change your mood towards the person who perhaps couldn't make good on what they promised you? I mean, do you children ever say to your mum, but mum, you promised, but dad, you promised. And for some reason, your mum and dad just couldn't actually do it. You know, perhaps it was a busy day, perhaps the car broke down, perhaps you were late. And suddenly, though you had said yes, though your mum and dad had said yes, they couldn't make good on the promise. And so now, you're not the same towards them. In other words, I think you're probably like me when I was growing up that when I was getting what I wanted, I was always in a good mood. But when I didn't, my behavior and mood always changed towards my mum. And for those who have dads, their dads as well. So now you begin to understand that we should never be motivated or expect people to obey our mood. Parents, parents, your children are growing up. Do you expect your children to obey your mood? I hope not. 
But it's very easy, isn't it, to expect a child to obey my mood rather than actually obey the standards of God as they ought to be reflected through the family. And so now we begin to see just how entrenched these issues are. Let's move on. Boys and men in the fellowship. When the fellowship is over this morning and you go out and you enjoy food together, what do you talk about as you sit around the table? What do you enjoy doing as you're out in the car park playing around or you're playing chess or whatever else you might be doing? Boys, do you look at other boys in the fellowship and think, oh, I'd love to have what they have? Are you coveting? Are you doing the very thing that James doesn't want you to do? Because if you do that, it'll lead to you quarreling. It'll lead to you fighting. It will then lead to you falling out with other boys in the fellowship. And we don't want to do that. Now, I don't imagine for a moment that any of you are. But I don't want to imagine for a moment that any of you are thinking that that is a good way to go either. Boys and men, understand that whatever controls your heart controls you. Whatever fills your heart will shape you going forward. It'll motivate what you think about, what you do, and what you say. And so boys and men, understand that this exhortation is like the fence at the top of the cliff protecting you from the fall to the bottom. Girls and ladies. What do you speak about? when you enjoy the fellowship meal together? Do you look at each other and wonder, I wonder if I could make a, why can't I make meals like that person does? Why can't I do what they do? How can they do so much and I can't do so much? Why don't be thankful for what God has given you and be thankful what God has made you able to do? And rejoice in the fact that if a lady in the fellowship is able to do more than you, rejoice with that. And if you're able to do less, rejoice in that as well. Girls, as you sit out and enjoy fellowship around the table, what do you talk about? Is your conversation with each other about the things of God, is it gentle? Is it gracious? Is it God-honoring? Think, are you thinking and talking about things that actually are godly rather than things that perhaps are not. The point that I'm trying to make this morning is that I don't know what you talk about because I don't know necessarily what fills your heart, but I want to know this, that whatever you talk about in the fellowship meals or out in the world for the rest of the week, it will be whatever has filled your heart. Whatever you do, men and women in the church, it is a reflection of your heart before God. Whatever you say, it is a reflection of your heart before God. And so for boys and girls, understand that your fellowship with one another needs to be both gentle and godly. It needs to be free from wanting what others have. And it is to be filled with the grace and thankfulness of what God has actually given you. So let's remember as we think about these words in James that when a church enjoys good fellowship like we do, and I believe we genuinely do, we must be aware of the dangers that are within. 
because they pop up all of a sudden. The moment we have a desire for something because we've looked at someone else who has it, and then we ask God for it and God doesn't give it to us, we then are not the same towards the other person who does have it. This is just the way it seems to happen. Now, here's the relationship then between the law of God and your passions. And this requires a little understanding. René Girard put it this way. He's best known for his work on why we imitate other people. But he said this, that if we were able to keep the 10th commandment, we would keep all the others. If we were able to keep the 10th commandment, which is not being jealous and coveting over other people's goods, then we wouldn't commit adultery because we have our own wife. We wouldn't steal because we're either content with what God has given us or we have one of our own. In other words, if we're able to keep the 10th commandment, then we are not desiring what our neighbor desires. And if we're not desiring what our neighbor desires, we're no longer driven by the desires of other people. We are rather driven by the grace of what God has given to us. And so you will either be shaped by what other people has, have, or you will be shaped by what God has given you in thankfulness. One is a worldly way, and one is a godly way. So as you live your Christian life, I want you to think right now, as I desire the things that I do, have I been shaped by what others have, or is it because I am thankful for what God has given me? I don't expect you to answer out loud, but I do expect you to honestly ask yourself that question before God this morning. Am I shaped by the desires of what other people have? By what other people desire? Or am I shaped and influenced by the grace of what God has given me? Because this is how it pans out. In first sense, we don't pray. We just don't ask, and so we don't receive. And then we go, well, perhaps I should ask God, but now we're asking God for all the wrong reasons, and so we don't receive either. So we don't ask, and we don't get. Then we do ask, but we ask wrongly, and we don't get. And so the third option is not an option at all, but it's one that happens, and that is, well, if I can't get it from God, I'll try and get it from the world. And how many of us have got to that point where trusting God has got to the point where it is now difficult, and so I'll turn to the world because it looks easier? But isn't God the one who gives every good gift? Isn't every good gift from God above? And so it doesn't make any sense, does it, to turn to the world for that which only God can give? But we do it, and why do we do it? Well, because we ask and we don't get. We don't ask and we don't get. We ask wrongly and then we don't receive. So what other option do we have if we cannot get what we want from God? We turn to the world. But now that doesn't make any sense because if every good gift comes from God, we're not going to get it from the world either. And so now you begin to see just how frustrating it is to have these passions at war within you, which then begin to cause quarrels and fights within the fellowship. This is what you must protect your heart from. How do I do that? Well, remember that God opposes anyone who is proud. You're up against it. Secondly, 
draw near to God, submit, resist the devil, and draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Don't be double-minded. Don't render the wisdom that God has given you in the word that God has given you ineffectual. That's exactly what Solomon did, as we learned last week. Solomon is regarded as the wisest man in Scripture, and yet look at his actions, they are the most foolish. Well, why? How is it possible to be that wise and that foolish at the same time? It's possible because a wise man is able to render his wisdom ineffectual with a divided heart, with double-mindedness. You can know all the right things to do and fail to do it if your heart is divided. And this is exactly where these people sit here. They have become adulterous. They have began to love another, the world. And in loving the world, they have this double-mindedness, this divided heart, and that is why they don't receive. It's not because God isn't giving. It's actually because God understands the condition and motivation in their heart. God does give. God gives generously to all who ask. And every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so the reason for not receiving isn't because there's an issue with God. It's because there's an issue with us. We're the double-minded ones. We're the ones who turn to the world. We're the ones who love something else in order to get what we want. And so James is really laying it on thick because he wants you to understand what is at the root of every fight and every quarrel within the church. It is nothing more than your old nature rubbing up against my old nature. And both has to be put to death. That's the mortification of sin. I will deal with my old nature before God. You will deal with your old nature before God. And then we can have fellowship. Because any time you fall out with me or I fall out with you, which I pray never happens, it is nothing more than your old nature irritating my old nature. And because of the proud nature that we have, we're going we're to want to come out on top. And so we fight, and so we quarrel. So let me draw this to a conclusion. Drawing near to God, simply put, means turning away from the world. God opposes those who are proud, but God gives grace to those who humble themselves. And he does this because he yearns jealously, jealously over you. In other words, God chases after you to receive. You go read the book of Hosea. Hosea is a wonderful example of just the lengths that God goes to to chase after a people who are constantly running away from him. And yet God never stops, never stops chasing. And yet we never stop running because we can't seem to make up our mind of, about God and the world. It doesn't make any sense. And so everything taught here in James, especially in this section, is taught in the context of, for us, that the fence at the top of the cliff is to be respected so that we don't suffer the consequence of the ambulance at the bottom. I want you to appreciate what James is saying because it is no different for us than it is for any other church. And it is no different in the home either. The home is disrupted in exactly the same way as James says this church is disrupted. Why? Because your relationship with each other in the home 
is always a reflection of your personal relationship with God. And your relationship with each other in this church is always a reflection of your personal relationship with God. And so if you're quarreling and fighting with each other in here, it is because at the very root, you have an issue with God, an unresolved issue. And so you must draw near to God and have it addressed. God is the one who gives. God is the one who gives. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And when you find that your passions are no longer at war within you, you will also find that you will no longer be at war with your neighbor. That's the point. When your passions are no longer at war within you, you will be no longer at war with your neighbor, wife, husband, children, mom, dad, the body of Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we look to you this day. We pray, Father God, that we not stand proudly before you, but humble ourselves and submit and draw near that we may receive your grace and be the people that you have called us to be. We pray, Father God, for strong fences protecting us from the fall into fighting and quarreling. And we would ask, Father God, that we would see the value of this fellowship in the same way you do, as people bought at a price, that price being the blood of Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.